The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. The subject tonight, as uh, Dr. Fenske has uh, said, is uh, the question of um, evolution, the meaning of evolution. So I want to address this tackle this this evening in perhaps a, uh, a manner and in a way that uh, is slightly different from the way in which you would usually expect this issue to be addressed. Evolution has been described by Daniel Dennett uh, as a universal acid. A universal acid. That is that it, it does affect absolutely everything that it touches. So when we speak and talk about the subject of uh, evolution of Darwinism, we're not simply talking about an idea in biology. We are talking about a worldview, a religious perspective upon reality that affects every single subject in the encyclopedia. It affects how we think about uh, human psychology. It affects how we think about uh, morality and ethics. It affects how we think about history and literature. It affects... Everything. So I really want to talk about this this evening, evolution as an idea, and then get into some of the specifics of how the popular form of the idea arose. And I can see that it's a diverse audience this evening, so I'm going to try and keep it, and some of you are uh, are younger, so I'm going to try and make it as comprehensible as possible and then clarify things in questions. And if there are specific things that you want uh, uh, to ask uh, at the end... Um, about the theory and so forth, and we can do that. I'm not a scientist by training. I'm not a doctor. I'm I'm not a uh, medical professional. My background is in theology and philosophy and Christian apologetics. I'm a generalist. Uh, But I think there are huge advantages to being a generalist Uh, because very often people in specialized disciplines uh, are so narrow in where they are focused that we miss the wood for the trees. So uh, I don't speak to you tonight as a, as a chemist or as a scientist by training, but as a Christian apologist and as somebody who's thought a lot about the philosophy of science. Now, <clears throat> the Christian community engaged evolutionary ideas a very, very long time ago. Paul the Apostle, in Acts chapter 17, stands up at the Areopagus at Mars Hill in Athens, which was the intellectual center of the then known world. And he addressed uh, philosophers there from a number of different schools of thought. Acts 17.22 tells us that Paul stood up in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. You are very religious. As part of the Roman Empire, Athens was a sponsor of what we would call today large-scale empirical pluralism and state-sponsored religious pluralism. It was the home to four very well-known philosophical schools. It had the Academy of Plato, the Lyceum of Aristotle, the Garden of Epicurus, and the Painted Porch of Zeno, all dating from around 300 BC. So there were sophisticated schools of philosophy in the ancient world which the Christian faith engaged 
very early on. Now, the Epicureans and the Stoics were the ones in particular that Paul was speaking to. And the Epicureans were basically ancient naturalists. They were atomists. They were essentially materialists. They were kind of an ancient version, though probably a good deal more intelligent than Richard Dawkins. I can say that because he's an Englishman. And for them, the goal of existence was uh, pleasure, lasting pleasure. Essentially, you live in a material world, and we're material girls, and therefore, pleasure is the goal of existence. Once you're dead, your atoms just disperse, and that's the end of it. Zeno, the founder of the Stoic school, agreed to an extent with the Epicureans. He says, yes, senses, our senses alone really provide us with knowledge. But he exalted reason as governing all matter. So there's a kind of impersonal view of the universe that somehow reason nonetheless governed the natural world. And when you consider that when Paul then speaks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, we're told that some scoffed, so some thought this was all a big joke. Uh, some said, this is interesting, you're bringing some new things to our ears. They perhaps thought he was speaking about uh, a couple of new gods, uh, um, a masculine and a feminine form, Jesus and resurrection. Uh, can we hear more about this? And actually others uh, in this philosophical community believed the Christian gospel. I often hear Christians say that Paul wasn't very successful, you see, in Athens. Uh, you know, and he abandoned that trust in philosophy, and then he just later spoke about Christ and him crucified. But actually, <clears throat> because they'll point to Acts chapter 2 and how successful Peter was, 2,000 converted in a day, and so on and so forth. But actually, if you consider the audience, Peter was addressing an audience in the book of Acts in chapter 2 that was uh, essentially had a Hebraic worldview. They were converts from all over the then known world to Judaism, whereas Paul was confronted with actually a philosophically sophisticated and actually evolutionary community of thinkers. And when he spoke about the resurrection, uh, some of them laughed because being materialists, they didn't believe in the supernatural in the sense of a God who would intervene in history and raise a human corpse from death. To, th to them, this was absurd. In Greek forms of mysticism anyway, the, soul was a, the body was a prison for the soul. And if anything, you were trying to escape the body, not have it resurrected. But he says to them, you are very religious. Now, what is religion? And this is a interesting question in and of itself. I mean, the origin of the word is a little bit murky. It probably is an agricultural term originally, meaning to tie back, to get things growing in the same direction. And there have been various definitions of religion. When we're in the, in the modern Western world, when we talk about religion, we tend to think about, well, the four or five major world faiths, and everybody else says, well, we're, I'm not religious. They may be spiritual, they say, but they're not religious. Well, this really is a misapplication of the meaning of the term religion. Paul Tillich says, religion is the state of being grasped by an ultimate concern, a concern which qualifies all other concerns as preliminary and which itself contains the answer to the question of the meaning 
of life. Uh, religion is simply a perspective, says Tillich, and I think he's as good a definition as any, a worldview perspective, the lenses through which you look at the world in which you seek to understand the things of ultimate concern and the very meaning of life. It doesn't need to be directed towards a deity or a personal deity. It doesn't necessarily involve public acts of worship. Many of the ancient Greek philosophers, like Aristotle, for example, believed in a supreme being, a kind of prime mover, but such a being to them was remote and totally uninterested in human affairs. So the idea of worship or ritual, ritualistic worship seemed uh, irrelevant to them. But going to the, the uh, ancient Greeks for a moment, and you will see how relevant this is to the question of evolution. When you take a look at the ancient Greek poems, Hesiod and Homer, they have the gods and all of creation evolving from some sort of primordial reality. So the myths of the ancient world were evolutionary. Uh, I was doing, I've done a number of debates in North America on the existence of God, and on a number of occasions, the philosophy professors who have been my opponents at these debates have opened with the, uh, what they think is a rhetorical flourish, of saying that, well, <clears throat> I don't believe in Zeus, and I don't believe in Thor, and I don't believe in fairies at the bottom of the garden. I'm an atheist with respect to those gods, and I'm, I'm also an atheist with respect to your god. It's just one more. And in that, they make a very serious category mistake, because the gods of the pagan world, of Eastern thought, are stationed inside of creation. They are a product of an evolving cosmos. They are an aspect or an expression of nature. So in Hesiod, the undifferentiated natural world is simply what is. Its existence is unconditional and it gives rise to everything else. Homer has a vast primordial expanse of watery stuff out of which evolve the gods and all material reality. So... The notion of the divine in, uh, in paganism and all pagan thought is evolutionary in its understanding of the world uh, is not any gods that may be named and stationed inside of nature. The unconditioned reality in which these people believed was nature, the universe itself, the cosmos itself. Whether it was purely chaotic or some principle of reason, some ineffable idea that governed reality. And this goes back beyond the Greeks, all the way back to Babylonian mythology and the god Marduk, who corresponds to Zeus. So if we're going to understand the claims of evolutionary thought and of Christianity in the contemporary world in their proper context, it's important to notice straight away that all human thought is inescapably religious in character. You don't escape religious assumptions. When you hear propagandists, and that's, I think, the best term for him, like Richard Dawkins, speaking about this subject, he speaks as though he is uninvolved in religious questions and has no religious presuppositions, but he's a zealot for his religious assumptions. And uh, this has been stated by atheistic philosophers themselves with respect to people like uh, Richard Dawkins. Now, 
when we recognize that religion then is not simply the worship of a god or gods or a personal being, but it actually can be simply the replacement of God with a substitute non-dependent reality, then we begin to see that none of us escapes religious pre-commitments as we look at the world. And your concept of divinity is whatever in your worldview is independent, is, has a non-dependent status on which everything else depends. You might say that's matter and energy, matter in motion, uh, some kind of uh, cosmic mind. Maybe you believe in panspermia, you think aliens seeded the earth with life and so on. This is a growing pop, an increasingly popular idea. But whatever is the source of, of uh Dependence for everything, that which on which everything else depends, and all of us are dependent beings, that is your divinity concept. Now, <clears throat> I want to then speak at this point about, as we think about these religious assumptions, about evolution as essentially mythology. If evolution and its most recent expressions in neo-Darwinism is ultimately religious in orientation. It is best to describe the idea, as we look at its history, as cultural myth. Myth is an explanation of life and origins that so expresses the contemporary spirit that contradictions and absurdities that are present within the idea go almost unnoticed because the myth has been so internalized by people uh, in their thinking that it's just assumed as true. Now, let me just give you a couple of examples before I move on. Charles Darwin himself noted the fact that if your mind is the product of common ancestry and some proto-hominid that you evolved, that the, that the human race evolved from. He says, who would trust the deliverances of a monkey's mind? He says, if anything was in such a mind, who would believe anything in it? What would be the basis on which you would have any confidence in the content of an ape's brain? And he says, this is called Darwin's doubt. He says, the horrible doubt arises, he says, always in my mind is, why should I believe that any, why should I trust the content of my own mind? In other words, there is good reason to doubt from if you have a religious worldview that presupposes an evolutionary understanding of reality, there's every reason to doubt the belief-forming processes of our minds. Second of all, when we think about how we justify the evolutionary story, we are making an appeal downward to the sub-rational. Let me put it this way. How many of you get your cat to check your homework before you hand it in to your professor? Uh, most of us wouldn't do that. Uh, maybe you'd risk checking with your parents because uh, they're not sub-rational. But in the evolutionary account of reality, we make our appeal to the sub-rational inferior to validate the rational superior. How do we justify rationality? We appeal to the irrational, the irrational world. 
Another issue that's right on the surface of the debate today, Thomas Nagel, atheistic philosopher in the States, recently written a book called Mind and Cosmos. And uh, it so troubled the uh, evolutionary community in, in Britain that they were panicking and hosting a meeting together to, what are we going to do with this heretic in our midst who's defected from the ranks? Because he's questioned whether Darwinism can account for human consciousness. And he says there's almost no doubt in his mind that it can't. Now, that doesn't mean he's falling on his knees worshiping Jesus, although I think he ought to be. But it does mean that what he's saying is, well, I think the only way we can get past this uh, absurdity, this, this fundamental, he thinks, contradiction, inadequacy in the Darwinian worldview is to posit the universe as some kind of mind. That just as there are physical laws, mind is somehow inherent in the universe. You may as well be a, a kind of Gaia pantheist at this point. You're all still with me, right? Oh, what, what about this? It, the kinship of all things is presupposed in evolutionism. So that there is a common ancestor at the, at the root and foundation of all life today. So when we differentiate between things in the world, uh, we can say, we say that, you know, uh, B evolves from A. But if B is evolved from A, you can't really say that B is better than A. You can't make a value. You can say it's different. But you have no basis for value judgments. Now, this is why people like Peter Singer chair of bioethics, I think, at Princeton, if memory serves, animal liberation and so on, really believes that you cannot make these kind of value judgments with respect to the distinction between the animal and the human. And so the practice of infanticide should be normative in Singer's view because a, a human baby has no more value or no, and, and perhaps, in fact, less cognitive capacity, he thinks, than a pig. And this is a result of his evolutionary thinking, his religious paradigm on the world says, well, if a ev uh, B evolves from A, I can say that it's different, but I cannot say one is better than the other. You know, you give an ethics class, uh, the, uh, the question, if, a, if you're in a boat with a, a dog and a toddler, and they both fall into the water at Niagara Falls, which one do you dive in to save? Well, for most of us, that would seem like an obvious answer. For many people today, it isn't. Okay, so there is a, just off the top of my head, four things that are, are rarely thought about or questioned when we think about the evolutionary worldview. Now, the great ideas in our current culture today can be summarized perhaps best with the two words, nature and liberty nature and liberty. The problem is, how can naturalistic, deterministic views of nature coincide with human freedom? So increasingly, we're told that we're a product of our genes, right? that we're dancing to our DNA, that there is evolutionary behaviorism. You know, put in the right stimuli, you get a guaranteed result because we're just biochemical machines. How do you have, then, a world of meaningful free choices, 
ethical responsibility, a criminal justice system, an ability to differentiate between right and wrong sexual practices, like there's a powerful movement now trying to normalize pedophilia. Well, this is, of course, a natural outgrowth of the evolutionary worldview because it is very difficult for us to retain the idea of freedom and responsibility in a universe that posits metaphysical and uh, a rather a physical determinism. So I want to suggest to you uh, this evening that evolutionism, metaphysically, that is, in terms of this worldview as a religious perspective, is really uh, a theological revolt against the sovereignty of God and his will and his purpose and his governance over all things at its root, at its foundation. Now, Darwin, uh, another one of my countrymen, so captured the spirit of the times that Bernard Shaw said, and I quote, the world jumped at Darwin. You, know, you often hear the, uh, the account that you know, there was tons of resistance to Darwin and you know, nobody liked him and so on and so forth. He had to battle through with real science to w- make his way through the Victorian scientific community. His, his, his book sold out like that. The whole world was, uh, uh, Europe was ready for Darwin because a new decree, one found in nature it stu- itself without the restrictions of the God of Scripture, could be in a sense a replacement God. That is, there was a new vision of progress. And this is how we try and solve the problem of uh, freedom and nature, how we resolve the issue of uh, determinism and uh, our our freedom, is we talk about progress, right? That somehow we're we're making progress. Politically, we call it progressivism. Now, nobody quite knows what we're progressing to, because that's never defined, but we're evolving, so change, and change is good, so change we must. The idea then here is that nature itself, without the restrictions of the God of the Bible, could maybe be a replacement God. And this idea was bubbling away at the time of Charles Darwin. A new liberty, it was thought, was granted to humanity as the custodians of their own future, as self-conscious humanity in the process of evolution was given opportunity to govern the future. And today, we have the technocrats and the scientific social planners who believe that man, as he merges with his own technology and improves himself, is going to learn to control all of life and all processes. They speak of even conquering death and downloading themselves into a machine. It's called transhumanism, post-humanism. You can read about it online. There are numerous universities corporations investing tons of money in all kinds of technologies where they think that you're going to be plugged in directly, like the Matrix, into cyberspace. And that human beings will transcend as custodians of their own evolution now, as the universe has become self-conscious in us, that we will now transcend what we have ordinarily defined as what, uh, 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 humanity. And they think the beginning of this was the Internet. So for those of you who are staring at me blankly, well, who watches Star Trek? Okay, 
Okay, some of you, who doesn't watch Star Trek? Don't be ashamed. Put your hands up. Shame on you. Put your hands down. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a race in Star Trek called the Borg. Okay, and the Borg are these part organic, part cybernetic life forms. This is more of a dystopian uh, vision of transhumanism. But that's the, that's the basic idea. I could go into that in great detail. I can't digress onto that now. But this is a continuation of the evolutionary idea that we now self-consciously control the process. And the myth consists then in process and progress. And as long as the language sounds scientific, sounds technological, and we, we hear people talking about neutrons and potentialities and chromosomes and anything, any miracle is possible so long as it doesn't have anything to do with God. But what happens to people who question the mythology? Now, I'm not talking about you know, people like me who are already regarded as beyond the pale, committing the ultimate act of intellectual pornography, questioning evolution. But what about people who are inside the camp? Well, Mortimer J. Adler at the University of Chicago, he called evolution a popular myth. And for this, he was absolutely excoriated. The uh, most noted philosopher of science of the 20th century, Karl Popper, famously said of Darwinism, and I quote, it is not a testable scientific theory, but a metaphysical research program. A metaphysical research program. He was vilified until he recanted, which is what happens. The noted Columbia University historian Jacques Barzun, commenting on the success of the evolutionary idea superseding all other beliefs in the West. He says, nor is it hard to understand why it did, for it fulfilled the basic requirements of any religion by subsuming all phenomena under one cause. Nature. So consequently, the myth of evolution fulfills the very same function as biblical Christianity for its adherents. It has an official creed. It has an ability to discipline heretics and so forth. And it does so. So there we have something of a sketch of the uh, beginnings of the idea and how it's, how it's functioned uh, philosophically. Now I want to talk specifically now about Darwin and the question now of uh, originality. Because the popular and modern expression of the ancient creed of evolution has come to be known largely as Darwinism or neo-Darwinism. Now, he was not original in any way in advancing a naturalistic explanation for life. These had been discussed many decades before. What Darwin did was serve as a catalyst, really, for a revival of this particular idea about the world. And it was at a time when there was a huge desire in the Enlightenment, post-Enlightenment Uh, the latter part there of the 19th century, since the Enlightenment had been underway, there was a great desire in the minds of people, especially the intellectual elite, to jettison the excessively restrictive God of Revelation. Darwin, like everybody else, was a product of his time. 
you know, I, I know that, you know, February 12th, this kind of, you know, annual worship of Charles Darwin, but he was just a member of the English aristocracy who wasn't particularly academically gifted, uh, who had the leisure time to be an amateur scientist, and managed to pick up an idea, and uh, with some observations that he made, and I'll talk about those in a moment, uh, popularize it with the support and help of many of his friends. But the mental furniture of the 19th century in Europe uh, had shaped Darwin. Darwin isn't a god, okay? He didn't descend from heaven in a white lab coat to reveal pure scientific truth to mankind, as some people seem to perceive it. He was just an Englishman. And there were certain determining factors that shaped his system. In particular, the faith of the French philosophers, the French intellectuals. And usually when there's a bad idea around, you can trace it back to the French. Never mind. We'll come back to that later. But the leading French intellectuals were known as the philosophes. And about a century before Darwin, there were men like Voltaire. Voltaire famously said that when he who listens does not know what he who speaks means, and when he who speaks does not know what he himself means, that's philosophy. Well, these philosophes had said that the way we uh, understand the world should be based solely on human reasoning. Forget God, forget revelation, forget Christianity, forget the church, forget all those things. Human reason alone must determine uh, truth. And they embodied, embodied the spirit of the enlightenment or the age of reason. They rejected uh, the God of Scripture. It's not that they weren't open to a concept of God. They were happy with the idea of a God uh, who was outside of, completely outside of any involvement in the creation, who had kind of wound round the universe up like a clock and left it to its own devices in terms of various natural laws inherent within nature, but not a God over nature. That was unacceptable. So a Greek conception of the first cause, perhaps, but this was not certainly the God of their forebears. And one can easily see how this idea of deism, of a God who played no part in creation or the sustaining of the universe, gave way not long after to atheism. Because if you cannot detect in any way the activity of a supreme being in terms of design, purpose, meaning, morality, and so on, in the created order, well, why do you need one? As, as the post-Kantian world of philosophers, that is after Immanuel Kant, uh, really came to say, well, that's the, that's, the, that's the noumenal realm, that's the realm that we have no access to. There may or may not be a being, but even if there is, it can have no bearing on our understanding of the world. It certainly can't reveal anything to human beings that we could understand. So there was nothing actually new here. The ancient Babylonians, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Greeks had a very developed evolutionary understanding of the world. Clear articulations of the theory predating Darwin came from, in the modern age, William C. Wells, who was a Scottish scientist, Patrick Matthew, a Scottish botanist. He published in 1813. And... Wells published in um, 1813, Patrick Matthew published in 1831, and Charles's grandfather Erasmus 
Darwin was a prominent scientific figure, and he was a great advocate of evolutionary ideas, including the idea of natural selection. He expressed it in his widely read book, Zoonomia. Charles never really credited his grandfather adequately. And this was published 65 years before Origin of Species. And other uh, writers on natural selection before Darwin actually included creationist scientists like Edward Blythe, who Darwin cites copiously in some of his work. Oh, there were various others. Um, I don't want to bore you with all of the detail, but one of the co-discoverers of natural selection presented to the Royal Society in England at the same time as Darwin was Alfred Russell Wallace. Darwin acknowledged Wallace's accomplishment. And uh, he became, Wallace became the leading occultist in Britain. And there's a logical connection between occultism and the evolutionary worldview. If you have, if everything is the result of inherent powers within nature, from the chaos, then chaos cults become the way to fertility and rejuvenation in creation. There's no God to appeal to. Nature is God in that sense. And so this was the very air that was being breathed during the 19th century. Now, the philosophies of Hegel, the German philosopher, and Auguste Comte, the father of, father of modern sociology, they also had posited process and progress in history. And so this whole climate was everywhere in the world of Charles Darwin. Evolutionary pantheism expressed in Buddhism and other Oriental religions continued to obviously prevail in the East, but even in Christendom, this idea had had a persistent following, even in, through the Christian era. And it had sometimes sought to amalgamate itself with Christianity. So you had crypto-evolutionists in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century in France. So much so, actually, that during the French Revolution... Uh, if you were uh, an atheist, you were assumed to be a revolutionary. And uh, to, uh, you were a person of suspicion. And in fact, Charles Darwin's family was uh, caught up in some of that. Now, we can trace the idea uh, right back to Plato, but it was popular throughout the Renaissance, through the 18th century. The idea that organisms could be arranged in a continuous linear scale with man at the top and the simplest life forms at the bottom. At the bottom, of course, below you had, uh, uh, below organic life, you had stones and metals and earth, water, air, and so forth. And they called it the chain of being. And it wasn't a fully uh, developed evolutionary concept in, in the way we would understand it today, um, because it still required the introduction of vast periods of time to make it sound plausible, and some kind of mechanism that would facilitate these changes. But this was the chain of being concept, or the scalar nature, the scale of nature. Even in um, uh, the totemism of um, Native American spirituality, you see the same idea. Now, the assumption today is that this scale of being extends over these vast eons and that the gaps in the chains have been filled by uh, evolutionary transitions. In the late 18th and early 19th centuries, when the geological column was being developed, the chain of being provided the key by which to organize the few fossils then available to give some sort of sequence 
uh, to this progression that later became ever the, ev the contemporary evolutionary paradigm. So Darwin's ideas were not new, and this is very, very important. They were not original. He offers observations after his round-the-world trip, and on that round-the-world trip, he took two books, incidentally, Milton's Paradise Lost and Charles Lyell's uh, Principles of Geology. And he meditated on both of them, thought long and hard about both of them. The basic idea, however, of uh, this creative role that then he introduces. So Darwin, what he does is he comes along and he says with Wallace that maybe this idea of natural selection, which had been articulated by a number of scientists before him, doesn't just play a role, a negative role, culling out the unfit. So where there's a mutation and the, the, the uh, creature is less fit to survive because of that mutation, maybe... These, this natural selection plays a positive role in the development of species. Interestingly enough, the origin of species doesn't deal with the origin of species. It doesn't give you the origin of species. It's, it's a proposition about how there might be transitions between various species. And so this was the idea that it could now play a positive role and bridge these gaps between all of life. Now, of course... Don't forget, the problem of chemical evolution was unknown to Charles Darwin. The problem of genetics was unknown to Charles Darwin. When um, uh, Ben Stein interviews a number of scientists in his uh, rather humorous documentary, what was it called, uh, No Intelligence Allowed, or what was it called here? Expelled. Um, and he asks the question about how life got going, one of the scientists says, on the backs of crystals. And he says, so... How does life get going again? Because the, 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 there is not even an imaginary path from non-life to life in the area of chemical evolution. This is why the idea of panspermia is becoming more and more popular, that an alien race seeded the earth with life, because it is so problematic. But the basic idea was present in the work of his grandfather. Here is what Erasmus Darwin says, and I'm quoting Erasmus Darwin now. Would it be too bold to imagine that in the great time since the earth began to exist, perhaps millions of ages before the commencement of the history of mankind, would it be too bold to imagine that all warm-blooded animals have arisen from one living filament? That's a, a simple cell. We now know there's no such thing. Which the great first cause imbued with animality, with the power of acquiring new parts, attending new propensities, directed by irritations, sensations, volitions, and associations, and thus possessing the faculty of continuing to improve by its own inherent activity and of delivering down those improvements by generation to its posterity world without end. So there you have a developed idea of the evolutionary paradigm in Darwin's grandfather. Now, the deistic beliefs present in Erasmus Darwin became rank atheism in Charles's father, Robert. Now, don't forget, this is significant. Nobody grows up in an oxygen tent in a laboratory unaffected by their parents or their teachers or their friends or their associates or the books that they're reading. And Charles's father was 
an atheist. Now, in Darwin's own era, so this is the, this is the, that was the century before. Now, what about Darwin's generation? He sometimes referred to a creator in passing. You will notice, if you've read Darwin at all, you'll sometimes notice he refers to a creator. Some would say that he did that to minimize opposition. Others would say that his God concept was one of a God progressively becoming more and more irrelevant to the real world. So his God was vague and was becoming steadily more and more irrelevant to history. With the modern age, God was becoming very much a theory as opposed to a person. So we talked about enlightenment rationalism and deism. That's the God who kicks the ball but is uninvolved. And Unitarianism, which is the idea again of God denying God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but some singularity. God is a singularity, a univocal being. Unknown, unknowable. Well, these doctrines were in Darwin's time being questioned even by the church. Now, this is very important because most of you will not know that Darwin studied for the ministry, for the Anglican church ministry. I'll come to that in just a moment. But the, the idea of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrines of the fall, the, the, the basic doctrines of Christianity were being rejected even by many in the so-called church. And increasingly, there was the sense that God governed the universe just by natural laws in this mechanistic way. If you want the technical terms, divine sanction and intellectual necessity. The first idea of divine sanction is that God just uses secondary causes, natural laws to govern all things. He has no involvement. He winds the universe up. It has inherent properties. The second idea is that you need a strictly, this is intellectual necessity, you must have a strictly naturalistic methodology and uniformitarian principle to make science meaningful. That is, you have to assume that there was never any other involvement than than the laws that we see in operation today. Now, what happened then is that initially, when these ideas were coming into the, the modern world, this is what shaped your world, by the way, and has shaped your education. This isn't irrelevant. This is not irrelevant to you. When these ideas began to flood the culture of the West, which was largely Christian, they started to initially give naturalistic accounts of biblical events. So they try and explain in naturalistic terms creation. They try and explain in naturalistic terms the fall or the flood. And they would offer mechanistic cosmogenies. That's mechanistic views of the universe where creation itself is evolving from a primeval void, and it evolves into a perfectly ordered universe. Mathematically perfect. And into these mythological accounts, biblical events were fitted initially, but only uh, secondary causes were used. It was never God at work. So when I was in school, when I was a boy, and 13 or 14 years old, and I was doing religious studies... The children of Israel crossed the Red Sea on a sandbar, right? And there were various winds that just uh, did this and that. And these miracles happened because of this physical cause and that physical cause. So there was, there was an attempt to give naturalistic explanations for God's direct activity. Well, this was what was going on in the 19th century. 
And uh, Isaac Newton's successor at Cambridge, William Whiston, proposed that even the earth could have been created by a comet and the biblical flood was caused by another comet. So this is what was happening. They, They didn't want to throw overboard completely the God of the Bible, but they wanted to offer purely naturalistic accounts where God was completely uninvolved in the universe. The universe was a huge machine. Via David Hume in the early 18th century, the idea of miracles was rejected. You see, if, you've got a, if your idea of the universe, of the cosmos, is that it's like a, a watch a, uh, and it's a, it's a perfectly functioning machine, just natural causes, obviously you can't have miracles in there. I mean, what does God do? Get a screwdriver, s- stick it in the cogs of the universe, hold everything up, do something strange and pull his screwdriver out again? Because their idea of natural law, the Christian notion, the biblical notion, is that what we call natural law is simply God's ordinary way of working. And miracles are therefore signs. That's what they're called in the Bible. They're a sign because they're not God's usual way of working. I mean, if somebody got resurrected every week, you wouldn't look at the resurrection of Jesus and say, wow, that's amazing. That doesn't usually happen. If there was one in the paper every week, it would be insignificant, wouldn't it? So with David Hume, the idea of miracles was rejected. Now, that wasn't original to him. Cicero said something very similar. But this regular action of inherent laws and properties that were operated under their own power without God was embraced by the intellectual elite, shaping the 19th century's perception of the world. And so God was becoming unnecessary and superfluous in philosophy, in science, and in theology. And this is very, very important for understanding Charles Darwin and others of the period. We can, we can talk about the two ideas uh, with these two terms, Gnosticism on the one hand, which I will explain, and natural theology. And uh, Cornelius Hunter in his book, Darwin's God Explains. I'm going to quote Cornelius Hunter for you. Listen closely. Uh, There's nothing better to do tonight. It's freezing outside. So just listen to this. Okay, he says, Gnosticism is an ancient belief system that draws a strong distinction between spirit and matter. Spirit is good. Matter is evil. Whereas the Bible says that God made the world, the material world, Gnosticism holds that God is utterly separate from the world, And thus, Gnosticism is a theodicy. That is, um, a theodicy is an explanation for why there is evil in the world. He goes on. Yes, there is evil, said the Gnostic, but God is far from it. God is separate and distinct from the world and not responsible for its evil. In Darwin's time, the world was increasingly seen as controlled by natural laws. God may have instituted these laws in the beginning, but he had not since interfered these, the laws were now his secondary causes. As in Gnosticism, God was seen as utterly separate from the world. So one important idea that goes way back to the ancient world was this Gnostic idea. God can't be contaminated with matter. He can't be involved in the material world. Now, Jesus says, not a sparrow falls to the ground without my father. And every hair on your head is nothing. There's a very different perception of the world than the one in which these uh, thinkers were positioning uh, God. The Gnostics couldn't believe that God would become man then in the Lord Jesus Christ, something that the Unitarians of Darwin's time also rejected. They could not envision a God involved in the misery of the world. 
How could God have anything to do with it? With all the suffering and all the problems and nature red in tooth and claw. So that was the first dominant theme that was present in Darwin, even in his education. The second was natural theology, which, unlike Gnosticism, did look for signs of the creator in creation. And this was exemplified by the work of William Paley, 18th century thinker. But their view was overly optimistic with respect to the world, and it didn't account for evil, and it neglected the realities of pain and suffering. So with these natural theologians, and they were the ones teaching the ministers of the time, they led people to expect perfect harmony in every aspect of God's world. Now, the Bible depicts the world as groaning, subject to futility, in a state that needs renewal. Whereas the natural theologians pictured it as this perfect, mechanical, mechanistic watch. I mean, this was, this was an expression in some respects of the mathematics of the 19th century. Perfection. The ideal of perfection. Now, Darwin read Paley, and he was very impressed by his arguments initially, but then he encountered in his thinking and his studies the corruption of nature, which had so bothered David Hume. And Darwin then attempts essentially to account for natural evil. And what was his solution? The theory of evolution. The theory of evolution. The philosopher Michael Roos, an atheist, writes, and I quote, Darwin is characterized as one who held some kind of basic belief in a God who works at a distance through unbroken law, having set the world in motion, God now sits back and does nothing. So God's role in creation was simply a a, a passenger seat role, not one, as Scripture says, where God is accomplishing his purposes, his design for history. So this rational theism, on the one hand, this natural theology sought to prove God on the basis of the harmony and the beauty of nature. And so these two ideas, this was the cradle in which Darwin was rocked. His grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, spoke uh, of whom uh, he spoke with great pride, was a deist, and then his father, as I mentioned, was an atheist. Now, Charles's mother and father were both educated under a teacher named Joseph Priestley, who was a rationalist, who tried to weld these ideas with Christianity. And... They were Unitarians. Both Darwin's uh, parents practiced Unitarianism, even though his father uh, professed atheism. And Charles's formal education began when he was eight at a Unitarian chapel. So he was being taught from childhood that this was an absentee God, that certainly Jesus Christ was not who he claimed to be. And so he received mixed messages from his parents in that respect. His father was this passionate skeptic, although he, like many of his age, went along to Unitarian worship, and sometimes the Anglican church, because that was the done thing. And then there was the passionate Unitarian faith of his mother. Well, when he's 16 years old, he enters the University of Edinburgh. And here at Edinburgh, evolutionary theories are everywhere. He's supposed to be there studying medicine, but he's bored. So I don't know what Ted would think of that, but uh, he's bored senseless with his study of medicine. 
And he's interested instead in these lectures he's hearing on geology and zoology. And he comes under the influence of Dr. Grant, who was an admirer of Jean-Baptiste de Lamarck, who was a deist, and published a theory of the transmutation of species, an evolutionary theory. His father soon realized that uh, he loved the natural sciences. So instead of having a career in medicine, he said to him, son, why don't you have a career in the church? Go into, go into the Anglican ministry. Now, why on earth would you do that? Well, because at the time, the clergy, uh, he was, Charles uh, Darwin himself was part of the aristocracy. He was landed gentry. He was going to inherit money from his father. Didn't really need to work. And if you're a clergyman in those days, you had leisure time for studying your interests in the natural world. He was a part of the leisured upper class, if you will. And in his Bible training for the ministry, I should say in his training for the ministry at Cambridge, the only theological material in it was Paley's Evidences of Christianity and Principles of Moral and Political Philosophy. This idea of this mechanistic universe. Can you believe Charles Darwin did not get taught biblical theology at Cambridge? They were just taught this rational theism. Because the Platonists had taken over Cambridge by this point, which was originally a Puritan university. By the way, the Christians did start all the great universities. They were founded as Christian institutions. Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Yale. You name a major Western university they were begun by Christians. The university, unity in diversity is a Christian concept. The university was born in the Christian medieval world. Today's university usually is a multiversity. It doesn't believe there's any unity under God that unifies the subjects in terms of an ultimate meaning. It's a multiverse. That's a dig- digression, and I'm already keeping you too long. But I'm enjoying this, so I'm going to keep you here for longer. So this was the foundation upon which the rationalistic approach to Christianity had been built. Paley never refers to the Bible. So Charles Darwin was not studying Scripture. He did not understand the biblical worldview with respect to uh, creation. What his understanding of Christianity was based on Unitarianism and his education at Cambridge in rational theism. Now, cutting that lengthy story short, he makes all kinds of friends down there who encourage him in his uh, thinking about evolutionary ideas. And then the British government orders that accurate maps are provided for their naval captains on the world seas. And so Captain Robert Fitzroy, who was 26 years old, wanted a companion of equal social status, an English gentleman, to help relieve the isolation of his command. How many of you have seen the film Russell Crowe, Master and Commander? Okay, if you haven't seen it, put your hands up, don't be ashamed. Shame on you, put your hands down. So that's a great film. Uh, It's very interesting because the doctor aboard the ship uh, who's there to practice medicine on board is actually kind of talking about crypto-evolutionary ideas. He's kind of a early, he's speculating about evolution. I think that's deliberate. But that's exactly what happened to Charles Darwin through a family connection because he was part of the... Uh, the gentlemanly class, this captain wanted a companion on the ship. He wasn't one of the plebs, but somebody he could you know, relate to as an equal, as an officer. And Charles Darwin was invited. So the HMS Beagle set sail on December 27th, 1831 from Plymouth. See, Darwin was just a human being who went on a ship 
to do some research on his own. Didn't have a team of scientists with him. And he took with him, as I said, Lyell's Principles of Geology and John Milton's Paradise Lost. And his conversion is gradual, it's progressive. That is his conversion to his evolutionary, a full evolutionary understanding. And he becomes committed to two basic assumptions. First, that the earth is eons old. Second, modification, as he had seen it amongst the finches of the Galapagos Islands, had occurred in living organisms over vast periods of time. He then, having reached that conclusion, went in search of a mechanism. And he would produce the new zoonomia, which was the origin of species. So he was influenced by Lyell, Malthus, Compter, his grandfather, and he steadily began to abandon any remaining belief in the validity of the Old and New Testaments. And he wrote in his autobiography that the more we know of fixed laws of nature, the more incredible, he says, biblical miracles become. He thought the biblical authors were ignorant, the Gospels he didn't think were reliable. And he says in his autobiography, his big objection was this, and I quote, my father, brother, and almost all my best friends would be everlastingly punished, and this was a damnable doctrine. So he didn't like the idea of uh, judgment either. Now, he married a woman called Emma Wedgwood, a famous, well-known family amongst the aristocracy in England. Uh, she was his first cousin. Uh, don't recommend that these days. Um, but it explains some of the English aristocracy. Uh, but this was, this was uh, a marriage that helped to some degree to stave off total atheism in his life because she was Unitarian. And the Unitarians denied the inspiration of Scripture. They held that Jesus was a creation, a created being, uh, and that uh, he provided a good moral example. And if you were a moral person, you'd, you'd be in favor with God. But she feared for her husband's soul. And this comes out in her letters to him. And this did not escape Darwin's notice. And he wrote to her in one of his letters. He says, when I am dead, know that many times I have kissed and cried over this. Let me try and draw the threads together then to conclude this uh, this evening. That the key to understanding Darwin and modern evolution is not simply the influence of naturalistic, materialistic philosophy, the French philosophical tradition and so on. The key is in the rational theism, the doctrine of the church at the time, and seeing Darwin's initial efforts as a way of responding to, providing an answer to, the problem of evil and suffering in the world. From the cradle, as we've said, Darwin was exposed to the doctrine of a God who was remote and distant from creation, where nature has taken his place, mechanistic laws have taken his place. And Darwin personally wrestled on multiple levels with himself uh, in these issues. In fact, there's a very interesting book uh, just published, I think it's by Jerry Brugman. Brugman. Uh, it's called The Dark Side of Charles Darwin. Details a number of these things. Uh, Darwin was uh, a very sick man for much of his life. He was extremely agoraphobic. He had a penchant for uh, inflicting pain on animals. He was quite disturbed in many respects, but he had 10 children. Three of his children died. 
One was called Annie. She was, he was, she was his favorite. She died at the age of 10. He was very close to her. He was unable to face death. He couldn't go to his father's funeral. He couldn't go to Annie's funeral. He didn't know how to deal with it. And as he looked at this rationalistic conception of God that he'd been taught by his parents and at Cambridge, this idea of the Victorian age, as he measured that against the observations of his studies in the natural world and the observations he saw in the moral world, he couldn't reconcile them. He couldn't reconcile this idea of a perfect universe, a mechanistically perfect universe, with the fact that he saw nature red in tooth and claw and moral failure everywhere. He was personally revulsed by slavery. He was, because of course he traveled around on the, when you travel the world on the HMS Beagle, you see a lot. And he was deeply impressed actually by the work of Christian missionaries in the Fijian islands, deeply touched by it. If you actually read his journals, he heaps praise on Christian missionaries. He was Involved in the philanthropy of a Christian gentleman. As you were as a Christian gentleman in England in the 19th century. This is the Victorian age. He, his, his, his ideas that he articulates in the descent of man contradict the way he, the, the way he lived. I mean, he talked about uh, the fact in the descent of man that we should not be breeding our feeble, disabled Uh, humans. He says, no no animal breeder is stupid enough, he says, to breed their worst animals. There you have the seeds of the eugenic idea that was picked up by his cousin Francis Galton, popularized and became popular here in North America. The United States sterilized 60,000 defectives, and we were doing it here in Alberta. We maybe come to that in Q&A. But his false doctrine of God was a product of his religious education, and it led to, I believe, a faulty conception of nature and the natural world, and led to a faulty uh, scientific theory about the natural world. His doctrine gave rise to a false theory, I think, in the natural sciences. In other words, in many respects, the evolutionary paradigm, as it's been given to us in the modern age, was, I'm suggesting, a theodicy, a way of explaining the mess and cruelty and seeming nature red in tooth and claw, as Tennyson put it, in the world, and getting whatever God there may be off the hook. So Darwin was using essentially a theological argument to absolve God of wrongdoing. Cornelius Hunter writes in Darwin's God, he says, the common denominator between Darwin's evolution and the earlier theodicies, that's the earlier arguments uh, trying to explain uh, the issue of evil, is that God governs by secondary causes, his fixed natural laws, and that God is uh, justified to humankind when we view natural evil as a result of some sort of cosmic constraint outside of God. In other words, God can't do anything about it. This is a cosmic constraint that whatever God there is, is under. The universe runs in terms of these inherent laws, properties, processes. And therefore, God is not responsible for evil. And this was, the idea of coming up with a theodicy was very common to the period. It's been common throughout the history of philosophy. But when we use the term God, 
in relationship to Darwin. Don't forget we don't mean the personal God of the Christian faith, a God who speaks, who reveals himself into history. Darwin's view of God was more akin to the God of the Greeks, and he later regretted reference to a creator in the origin of species. In fact, in a letter he wrote to one of his disciples, Darwin said this, and I quote, I have long regretted that I truckled to public opinion and used the Pentateuchal term, that's the Mosaic books of the Old Testament, of created, by which I really meant appeared by some wholly unknown process. So the dilemma, if you will, was the problem of morality that the, 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 the Darwin could see that to retain the idea of a moral universe where you could make moral judgments, differentiate between good and evil, make value judgments, those seemed to require a divine presence. Otherwise, there was no basis for morality. But the problem he saw of natural evil, he thought, seemed to demand a divine absence. How could these be put together? Well, we might summarize that in these last few moments By saying that Darwin's, uh, whether it was fully self-conscious or not, Darwin was seeking to come up in the 19th century, surrounded as he was by the intellectual furniture of the period, with a way of dealing with the problem of evil and yet still live as an English gentleman. Because he wasn't a 21st century uh, chemist. He was a 19th century Victorian Cambridge-trained, part-time Anglican, Unitarian, evolutionist pagan. Right? He, he, he was a, he, this, is a, this is what you call an intellectual muddle. Okay? And this deistic conception of God and a naturalistic view of mechanical laws operating on the world being the first premise, he comes up with this theodicy. So Darwin really accelerates a movement in the 19th century. He doesn't create one. He wasn't revolutionary in his thinking. And actually, when you look at the so-called science of his books, he really didn't contribute much scientifically either. It was the power of the idea that he popularized, that he popularized that's given it such currency. God is absolved in the process of being involved in any of the world's mess by being reduced to a cause of distant remote causes in a self-regulating universe. So we really have the revival of Gnosticism. We see that the notion of religion then, as this idea became pervasive, must be separated from science. Do Do you see that? So if God is remote and distant and not involved and hasn't been involved in history... That God, science and religion become non-overlapping magisterium. They cannot be, they cannot touch at any point. So you can still retain a faith in a God out there, although who knows what he's like and who he is, and you certainly can't accept revelation from God as given in Scripture. So Scripture can't tell you anything about the material world, the natural world, creation, history in that sense. Because this universe is governed by purely naturalistic material causes. Whatever is beyond that, we can't really know. But you can have your faith. You can make your leap of faith.
We see clearly his theological concerns actually in a letter that he writes to a friend, Asa Gray. This is what Darwin says. And this, listen, to how, listen to how he frames it theologically. This is very important. He says, I see a bird I want for food. This is Darwin. I take my gun and I kill it. I do this designedly. An innocent and good man stands under a tree and is killed by a flash of lightning. Do you believe, and I should really like to hear, he says, that God designedly killed this man? If you believe so, do you believe that when a swallow snaps up a gnat, that God designs that particular swallow should snap up that particular gnat at that particular instant? I believe, this is Darwin's theological leap, I believe that the man and the gnat are in the same predicament. If the death of neither man nor gnat are designed, I see no good reason to believe that their first birth or production should be necessarily designed. Now, you see, this is a religious argument. The scriptures declare that God is free to create calamity. He knows the hairs of our head. He knows when a sparrow falls from the sky. He is fully aware and cognizant in his providence of everything in this fallen and broken world. And Darwin, though, could question this assumption of biblical teaching without the need for justification because in his time, in this period, this Gnostic idea in the Victorian age that's gone on into modern times was all pervasive. So nobody would have really pulled up Darwin and said, hang on, Charles. This is not the biblical conception of God. God is removed then altogether from the world and creation. God and matter don't mix. Darwin's theodicy, theodicy to explain natural evil failed, though, to answer the question of why we perceive it to be evil. Think about the assumptions that Darwin is making there in that statement. He says, he says lightning strikes a tree and it falls on a man and kills him. Well, Darwin's troubled by that. He's troubled by that. He doesn't think the universe would be that way if this God is real. So he's making theological assumptions about the nature of God. He's also making assumptions about good and evil. But in a universe of blind, pitiless indifference, as Dawkins has put it, why would you be disturbed about any of those events? This is just the way things are. But as evolution took hold, people began to think of morality as derived from evolution as well. So instead of thinking in terms of values and objective morality in God, Darwin wrote, and I quote, as the monkey fears the snake, so the child believes in God. In other words, he said, our beliefs... And then our moral convictions simply become the product of evolution. His wife actually got rid of that passage from his autobiography. She was very upset about it. But the idea that faith and morality emerged from the evolutionary process persists now down to the present in social Darwinism. Of course, we saw the horror of it in the eugenics movement, in Nazism, in Marxism. And thus, the human mind evolves allegedly to believe in the God or the gods. And nature is used to explain everything. 
Thus, assumptions are made here about the nature and character of God prior to the theory of evolution. And this is critical. Darwin had made assumptions about God and his nature prior to the theory of evolution. He thought God couldn't make a cuckoo to push young out of the nest. God wouldn't have allowed the wasp to act as a parasite in the host. What kind of God would create the mosquito? So he's got these assumptions about God. And these dominated the age in which he lived. And so Hunter writes, This is the great myth of our time. Evolution is not a story of a bold scientific stroke that has been beautifully borne out by the advances of science against metaphysical resistance. It is nearly the exact opposite. It is not that evolution is utterly unscientific or that it completely lacks any evidence, but evolution supporting evidence is outrun by the counter-evidence. Both 19th and 20th century science provided more than enough challenges to put evolution's validity in doubt. But the 19th century metaphysical, that's religious, trends have continued through and beyond the 20th century. Evolution's compelling argument and the reason for its success come not from its scientific support, but from indirect arguments against creation and the God of creation. But how can you find evidence against the divine without assuming something first about the divine? The evolutionists from Darwin on have superimposed an idea of God this is why, you know, the, that very famous passage in, da- in Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, where he comes up with this whole string of insults for God, that he's a megalomaniacal, parasitical, pestilential, and he goes through this very long list of verbiage. He's made assumptions about the character of God, and you find when you engage in the discussion about the evolutionary paradigm, especially at the popular level, Much of it is taken up with negative arguments against creation. Thus, the doctrine of evolution relies on ideas and claims that are actually outside the scope of science and empirical investigation. It rests on religious and metaphysical beliefs about God. It draws on science in some of its disciplines. But it has a metaphysical belief about nature and God. And in Darwin's own thinking, this was absolutely present and gave shape to his theory. In many respects, we can say the end result of Darwin's theory is not that there is no God, but that whatever God there may or may not be is utterly disjoint from the world. He's unknowable and he's not involved. The God of evolution, whether he exists or not, has no role in history. Interestingly enough, Thomas Nagel in his recent book, Mind and Cosmos, in wrestling with the problem of consciousness and saying that Darwinism simply cannot account for it, is comfortable with the notion that this mind that he believes is inherent in nature could be the result of a God. But this God must be Darwin's God. It must be the deistic conception of God who has no involvement in the real world. And of course, people are happy with that kind of a God because that doesn't... doesn't affect our lives at all. doesn't challenge us ethically or morally. It's just a principle of rationality, a limiting concept, so that we don't have to have infinite regression. 
We have then come full circle back to the God of the Greeks, the Greek notion of God, the chain of being, and mysticism and paganism. And that's why our culture today is obsessed with occultism and mysticism. We are, we are living in a time of the massive revival of pagan spirituality. Loads of people identify as Buddhists today. They're happy with the notion that, uh, of non-being or being, ultimate being, nature, avatars. They're horoscopes, labyrinths, table raising, spiritism, palm reading, dream analysis, power from below, inherent powers within nature. What is not acceptable is a God above nature who is outside of creation, but who also is imminent within it, who governs history. And it is not uncommon now to hear hard-nosed scientists making such religious confessions. Chet Ramo, whom Stephen Jay Gould endorsed as a wise religious humanist, showing how to heal the false and unnecessary rifts in our intellectual culture, bridging the gap of scientific knowledge and religion. This is what Chet Ramo says. Listen closely. The God of spiraling powers resides in nature beyond all metaphors, beyond all scriptures, beyond all final theories. It is the ground and source of our sense of wonderment, of power, of powerlessness, of light, of dark, of meaning, and of bafflement. It is the God whose history began when the first human experienced awe, contingency, fear. There encounter gate-jawed and silent the God of birds and birth defects, trees and cancer, quarks and galaxies, earthquakes and supernovas, awesome, edifying, dreadful and good, more beautiful and more terrible than is strictly necessary. Let it strike you dumb. Let it strike you dumb with worship and fear. Beyond words, beyond logic, what is it? It is everything that is. This is the pop, this is Oprah Winfrey religion. But this is being said by Scientists, this is not new, of course. Huxley, Michael Paul tells us, invested dame nature, as he called her, with attributes hitherto ascribed to God, a tactic eagerly copied by others since. The logical oddity of crediting nature, every physical thing there is, with with planning and creating every physical thing there is, passed unnoticed. Dame nature, like some ancient fertility goddess, had taken up residence, her maternal arms encompassing Victorian scientific naturalism. So today's culture and today's evolutionary thinkers, far from being religiously neutral, are in fact committed to an ancient pagan concept of the divine. Nature itself, inherent powers within nature, and possibly mind itself like physical law operating to bring about everything that is without recourse to God or to design and this is the religious meaning of evolution and Darwin's leap of faith was to make these assumptions about any God that may exist and to come up with a way of excusing that God from what he perceived to be natural and moral evil When we actually begin to see and demystify the evolutionary paradigm, it becomes a bit less threatening, and we're more ready then to ask questions, intelligent questions. The the idea has a history. 
It has a background. It has a set of assumptions about the world. And we should be ready to challenge, to ask questions, and to offer and be free to offer alternate explanations to the Darwinian one. And I believe that actually, uh, in fact, a recent survey was done just a couple of weeks ago, published in a major periodical. Uh, I think it was 166 different intellectuals around the world were asked to name uh, the ideas that they think were hopelessly outdated and needed updating or needed abandoning altogether. And in the top seven responses were both the Big Bang and evolution. So was not a, this was not an interview, this was not a series of questions put to pastors. Okay, this was to those deemed leading intellectuals. And uh, we are seeing increasingly this paradigm is being questioned and challenged even by, by, by both philosophers and scientists, at least saying this cupboard is empty and when is somebody going to say the emperor has no clothes? Now, I'm not suggesting that when we say that, that suddenly everybody's going to be in church. I think that the dominant response is going to be something like that of Thomas Nagel's, which is we move back to an, essentially an Eastern pantheistic Greek, uh, Greek pagan concept of the universe. I think that will become the dominant religious perspective, short of God doing something very significant with the Christian church. But it is an opportune moment for us to be courageous enough to question and challenge this cultural myth. Thank you for your time and attention. I'd be really happy to take some questions now before refreshments. As uh, Ted said, we will send that uh, journal to you free of charge. Uh, so if you're Dutch, you'll be very appreciative of that, uh, or Scottish. Um, I've got both Scottish and Dutch backgrounds, so I can say that. Uh, and the, the, the journals cover all kinds of topics, and uh, including the subject of the sciences. So. Any questions? Well, this is why the um, vast eons of time is necessary to make the evolutionary story uh, plausible. They're so vast that we can't comprehend them, even mathematically. Don't forget, the, the evolutionary story, very often when people think about this question, they think, oh yes, there are some missing links, aren't there, between proto-hominids and humans. And that's because they been reading their school biology textbooks which show these lovely pretty pictures of all these branches everywhere and the only bits that are missing are at the end. The, that's not the problem. The problem with the evolutionary account of reality is that it begins with cosmic evolution and we don't have a thoroughly established cosmology. The cosmologists say that all known laws of physics break down at the quantum singularity. We don't know what was going on at the beginning of the universe. There, uh, many scientists are, are returning to steady state or oscillating models of the universe. Then you've got the problem of chemical evolution. There's no, not even an imaginary pathway to life from non-life. Then you've got how uh, you can only talk about natural selection in evolution when you have a fully functioning reproducing system. 
Well, when we thought before the genetic revolution that there was such a thing as a simple filament, uh, that sounded plausible. Well, now that we know that that because of the genetic revolution, our understanding of DNA and RNA, that you have all this uh, machinery, microscopic machinery and translation machinery that must be working before you and reproducing before you can even speak of natural selection. We have a serious problem there. And then you have the issue of how information is built. Uh, How do we get the highly specified complex information systems? How does information grow? What we observe is that information sometimes gets shuffled or produces damage and is lost, but we've got no empirical evidence, even in bacteria, that that the information content grows so that we can... So how does the, the, the the supposed evolution of the bat is that a mouse-like creature starts to grow sort of webs between its feet and then goes blind and then develops sonar equipment. Well, how that mouse is going to escape the cat, I don't know. The blind, crippled mouse as opposed to the other mouse. Um, but how, where do you get the information to build the sonic system? Okay, now, so that uh, geneticists recognize is a problem. Now, the, the neo-Darwinism is the idea that mutations somehow can account for this, but that's highly controversial. Although it's practically assumed as gospel uh, by the, the general public. Then you have the, the, uh, the gaps then in the fossil record in terms of, uh, you know, we have what we, they call the Cambrian explosion where these creatures appear fully formed in the fossil record. And that's why people like Stephen Jay Gould uh, uh, proposed the um, punctuated equilibria, which is the idea that, just as what you've said, because these creatures from the Cambrian explosion appear completely stable, there's humans, and then there's monkeys, and then there's apes, and then there's fish, and then there's horses, and then there's dogs, and there's still dogs, and there's still horses, and there's still fish. And we can't observe these kind of changes. Uh, and we don't have the fossils to... I mean, Darwin himself said, why are we not kicking around these fossils in the back garden? They should be everywhere. They should be, if the gradualist account is true, they should be so plentiful you wouldn't be able to go out into your garden and plant the flowers without pulling up fossils. right? Because of the number of changes that would be necessary between each type. So <clears throat> the, so the other model that's been proposed called punctuated equilibria is that in geological time, evolution sped up dramatically and left no evidence of itself. So that uh, it doesn't matter that you can't observe evolution today because the periods of time are so vast, they're incomprehensible to us. And so that's why, in some respects, it's impervious to critique in this area. So it's a, it's a whole story. It's a cosmology. It's a whole story of reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good, very good question. So uh, did everybody hear the question? Um, uh, you know, I said that uh, Darwin w- maybe was trying to account for the problem of, of evil uh, in the world. How do Christians go about uh, um, responding to that? Well, first of all, the, the, the Christian response involves um, stating at the outset that it's only the Christian who has the categories to formulate the question. Because if you do not have uh, a, uh, a, a personal God who has moral character, in which, who has a moral law by which you can distinguish right and wrong, good and evil, 
then our idea of good and evil is illusory, as in Eastern philosophy, in Buddhism, in Hinduism. There is an identity between good and evil. They would say, you're, they would say that's a Western category. So, in principle, the Buddhists should have an indifference uh, between the, the Jew in the, the, uh, the oven and the Nazi who's putting him in there. The murderer and the murdered. There is no basis outside of a Judeo-Christian perspective on reality to speak about good and evil. This is why Dawkins involves himself in a contradiction when he says the universe is just blind, pitiless indifference. Well, there's no justice nor injustice, he says, but how do you understand that statement without moral categories? You can't escape moral categories. So, the, the, first of all, the biblical answer is that God does not need evil to define himself. God is good within himself because he is tripersonal. He's already in ethical relationship within the person of the Trinity. So evil isn't self-existent. Second of all, uh, what we call evil is, uh, doesn't have a, uh, a, an existence of its own as though it were eternal next to God. Rather, it's the corruption of that which is good. So it's the, in, in the Bible, it's the failure to be what God is, the standard that God requires. It's falling short or missing the mark. Uh, and so we have a, 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 a description of evil that allows us to retain the, uh, the moral character of God and the dependent uh, character of evil in terms of the created order and man's are human fa- after all trees aren't evil you don't you don't chastise your dog for being sinful do you when it poops in the kitchen i mean you have to train it to go outside but you don't say you, say, you need to repent go and go and say sorry to because we don't assume that trees and cats and dogs have moral character so persons have moral character now in the christian worldview uh Human beings are given the freedom of a creature, not absolute freedom. You're not absolutely free. So, for example, uh, those of you who are, say, 60 years of age or older, you can't be 21 again. Uh, You uh, can't go to the moon right now. You can't choose, and you didn't choose where you would be born. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose uh, whether you'd be a man or a woman. None of those things, you didn't choose which century you'd be born in, you are a creature. So you are conscious of making free decisions, but you're not absolutely free. You have the freedom of a creature. God is sovereign in in the biblical worldview over all creatures, but we have the freedom of a creature. And uh, evil and suffering entered into the world through what the Bible calls the doctrine of the fall, where, and in the sense that the the term the fall gives you an apprehension of what we're talking about, where we missed the mark where man rebelled against God. If you think about uh, an apple that's not rotten, a nice green apple, it's a good apple. Now, if you leave that apple out for three weeks on the kitchen table, it's still an apple, but it's rotten. It's no longer what it was, it, as it was meant to be consumed. It's dead. And... Uh, in some respects, all analogies fall short, but we as human beings, we're still humans even though we have sinned against God and we're morally depraved, but we have, we're corrupted. So evil is the corruption of goodness. Sin is missing the mark. 
And uh, God has permitted it. In his providence and in his sovereignty, God has permitted both moral evil, rebellion against him, and he has permitted a natural, what we might call natural evil, that is disasters, the things that are not necessarily decisions that human beings have made, but they are ultimately the product of that because the fall affected all of creation. It says that the whole creation groans, earthquakes, disease, suffering, all of these things. Now, you know, I'm not just speaking abstractly in this sense. My wife was diagnosed with cancer two and a half years ago. And so as a Christian, I have had to myself work through the question experientially, not just theologically, what does it mean to know, worship, and love God in a universe where suffering is permitted and where evil does happen? And the the biblical answer is this is a fallen world. Man rebelled against God. God in his providence and sovereignty has permitted moral evil. As a result, he's permitted natural evil. And he doesn't leave the world to its own devices. It's fallen. It's broken. He sends Christ into it, who suffers. And he comes to remake, to restore. The miracle, Jesus' miracles of healing are pointing to the direction of history, the future of the new creation, when the Bible says there will be no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. The old order of things will be passed away. Death will be swallowed up by life. You have the restoration of all things. So the ministry of Jesus Christ entering into history is redemptive and restorative. Now, of course, the, uh, the difference with the evolutionary paradigm is that evolution says, no, death, disease, decay, mutation, suffering are basic to creation. And it's through death, death is the engine of life. So it's good that everything dies and is diseased and mutates and everything else because that's what brought us to where we are today and is going to take us on into our future. And that gives you all kinds of ideas like population control and everything. I could go off into lots of tangents there about how we've applied this idea culturally. But the Christian worldview says, no, there was a good creation which fell and Christ is restoring it. Well, if evolution is actually the true account of the universe, what's Christ restoring us to? death, disease, and mutation, and suffering. So evil is an aberration. It's a corruption. It's a falling short. And actually, only the Judeo-Christian worldview can even define evil. There is no real evil outside of a biblical worldview. Actually, most of moral philosophers would admit that, too. Well, it's interesting, the language that's used, language is so important, death with dignity for killing people. Uh, the the um, eugenic idea, 
was basic to Darwin's thought. And, and if you haven't read The Descent of Man, or if you're not aware of the content of The Descent of Man, it's important to make yourself aware of it, which was where Darwin really started to look at some of the implications of what evolutionary theory meant for human beings. And uh, certainly these ideas were developed and refined uh, by his cousin, Francis Galton, and then uh, developed by a lot of, um, uh, later by a lot of leading European intellectuals and North American intellectuals into the eugenic idea. And uh, it's no surprise that in a culture that, that increasingly has a love affair with death, that we want to uh, both at the be control life at both at the beginning and the end. So we have the issue of abortion, of course, in, in Canada, and now we're going to have the issue, issue of euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. Um, and the, um, some of this is motivated by population control, of course. There are lots of intellectuals here in North America who think that we need to remove 70% of the Earth's population because of the myth of overpopulation. Actually, we're moving into a demographic winter. Any demographer worth their salts will tell you, demographers are people who plot Earth populations, uh, that um, the the Earth's population is going to peak in about 40 or so years. And then it is going to go into a steep, uh, an incredibly steep drop that could be catastrophic. Uh, the um, fertility rates are hopelessly low in most of Europe. And uh, North America, in the United States, keeps up just at the moment by immigration, but uh, it's dropping steeply too. Um, and these are because of views on the family and so on. But uh, behind all of these things, and Margaret Sanger, the founder of, founder of Planned Parenthood, was a eugenicist, she was a racist, she was an evolutionist. And they were targeting minorities, by the way, for abortion, and this is usually done. This is done in the name of maternal health, of course, and then killing elderly people is death with dignity. And then, you know, physician-assisted suicide, uh, you know, we're just not calling it what it is. So... <clears throat> We use these euphemisms to uh, f keep people from experiencing the true reality of what we're actually talking about. Well, we are talking about playing God, and death is the engine of life in the evolutionary paradigm. So, and survival of the fittest, culling the unfit, was, is essential to the, to the Darwinian understanding of reality. And in many respects, we've sanitized the eugenic idea and we've brought it back with the medicalization and politicization of medicine in our culture. And I think it's highly dangerous. I mean, some of you young people, you may think, well, this isn't relevant to me, you know, these old people who aren't very well in hospital, whatever. You're going to be old one day. You're going to be old. And, and the way you think about your life now the way you think of yourself doesn't change because you hit 80 years of age. Just because your body starts creaking doesn't mean you don't love life. You don't want to live. And you will be the ones, if we don't stop these bills, that what if the state sets a, a maximum age limit because of population control mythology? This is the stuff of science fiction, but it, this, this could be the real world. There's something in Britain at the moment called the Liverpool Care Pathway, where people are literally being, uh, and a, a doctor recently blew the whistle on it, where uh, one particular a doctor had admitted an elderly person to hospital, thought they were going to be fine, gave them some treatment. They were going to be there over the weekend, released the following week. He comes in on the... He actually comes in, I think, he says he came in early for some reason. 
earlier than he should have been there and found that this person had been put on the Liverpool care pathway, which was basically euthanasia. He immediately took that person off of the care pathway. They were out of hospital in a couple of days, back home with their family. So some of it is driven by availability of beds and economics, which is our population is getting older and we're not having enough children. That's why they're closing schools all over Toronto. That's why the boomers, we, the, the housing prices will drop because there are too many houses, because there aren't enough children to go in them who are going to have families, okay, the, for the Gen X and the millennials. And uh, we are, we're actually facing a population crisis. And as the taxes, if you've got a dwindling working population, who's paying the bills for health care? for pensions, for all of these things. So the care that we expect, the pressure is going to be on economically as well to pressure people into turning themselves off and saying, well, you know, I've got this illness. I, 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 ought to, I feel obligated to my family or to my society and so on. Or it could become coercive. China, the one-child policy, there are intellectuals in, in Europe and North America right now advocating that there should be a tax on every child that you have. You have, a, you have a, a tax rate for one child, a higher tax rate for two. If you have three children, that your wealth is completely confiscated. This is what many of these people would like to do. So these ideas have far-reaching consequences, and don't think they won't do it. You look at the Soviet Union, you look at Nazi Germany, these are highly civilized cultures that got swept up into these ideas. Ideas have consequences. Yeah. Well, that's not uh, that easy to answer um, because there's so much to know about, and uh, I have sort of omnivorous reading habits, and so I'm, and, and that is kind of my job. So, um, and uh, I'm, you know, I'm at think tanks and conferences where I'm listening to people speaking about these things who've got experience in areas that I don't have. But a good place to start um, would be to uh, look at some of the um, material. Look at some of the books, and I'd be happy to if um, maybe we can provide like a book list, Ted, that, that everybody could access, uh, and that maybe CMDS or the EICC can provide. That would be some some uh, readable introductions to these issues. I can recommend one person off the top of my head in terms of the, the science of the issue as a very gifted intellectual and scientist called Dr. Jonathan Safati. He's written a number of very, very good and important books that are accessible to the layperson on the scientific issues. But it's just as important to understand the theological and worldview issues that surround this. Otherwise, people get bamboozled by science. You know, the, the, the flashy documentary comes on, it's had so many thousands spent on it, and the deep voice of David Attenborough and his English accent, and it all sounds very convincing. And yet it's, it's religious propaganda a lot of the time. David Attenborough is one of the people who thinks that we should eliminate 70% of the world's population by population control because humans are a virus affecting the planet. So uh, we, let, we can provide something of a book list, but, but um, Jonathan Safati would be a good place to start. 
um, uh, in terms of the science. And um, I would have to give some thought to readable introductions to the philosophy of science issues. Mm-hmm. So, did you all hear that? If everything came out of you know uh, evolutionary processes and emerged from the chaos, how do evolutionists uh, uh, talk about objective morality? They, they don't. They don't believe in objective morality. Although it's interesting, they do think they should impose their morality on everybody else. <laughs> so it's subjectively objective, right? They do think that they are the elite and that they know what's best for the world. Uh, and that these ideas ought to be imposed and not questioned uh, in the academies. Now, if you, interestingly enough, if you misrepresent an atheist position, uh, he's going to be upset. Well, there's a moral category right there. You shouldn't lie. You shouldn't misrepresent my position. But the atheist worldview doesn't provide any basis for objective morality. The atheist explanation for morality, as I talked about in my lecture, the, uh, the, the monkey fears the snake as the child believes in God. Morality is somehow thought to be, uh, the, mor- the moral um, ideas that we have in our culture are somehow simply thought to be somehow conferring a survival advantage. So that we have moral ideas because of cooperation and altruism and so forth because somehow they've conferred on the human race a uh, survival advantage. The problem with that is that what they're really saying is anything that happens in the social order confers a, social adva- uh, confers a survival advantage, which is why it survived. So how then do you deal with a question of rape and murder or bestiality or pedophilia? These are all things that occur in nature. Have they conferred a survival advantage? So they are unable to provide objective morality. What they'll say is that there are they can give evolutionary reasons why a certain morality at a certain point may be useful, but of course it may be different next year. I was in a debate with a psychiatrist on one occasion um, in Coburg in um, Ontario, and I challenged her on this point, and I said that, um, well, you know, the Christian Bible says we're to love our neighbor, but um, in Fiji, in the Pacific Islands, uh, they were eating their neighbor, which is right. And I said, surely... Uh, if, we, if we've got no objective standard to judge between this two, who's to say that morality in t- 10 years' time in this country isn't going to be cannibalistic? She got up and said, yeah, that's absolutely right. We could be. Because ethic, of course, at that point, the whole audience is like, she's lost her mind, for the most part, except for the avid atheists in the, in the group. Um, but you see the issue there is that there's no objective basis for m- morality. It's changing. Uh, as evolution is in process, morality changes. So Emil Durkheim, the father of um, modern sociology, really, uh, said that criminals are the evolutionary pioneers, uh, are the uh, pioneers of the future, the, the ethics of tomorrow, the morality of tomorrow. So you shouldn't put too harsh sanctions upon criminals because they are pointing towards the morality of the future. So you lose a basis even for criminal justice. And that means that um, in philosophical terms, in social terms, our morality is just socially constructed. So that's why in Canada we're redefining the family. We've done it. We've redefined marriage. We're now redefining gender to the point where we're being told there are between seven and 14 gender identities. 
nobody, nobody in the real world knows what these people are talking about. But these are the, they have all these letters for different identities that people are supposed to be able to self-identify as. Because the very idea of male and female now, they're saying, and gender normativity is a social construct. Because there is no objective uh, element to reality at all that transcends what occurs in nature. So morality is social construction and anything that confers a survival advantage, which isn't objective morality. Should we take one more? One more question. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, um, I, I gave a few at the beginning, a long way back to the beginning of the lecture, I know, um, that uh, are sort of on the surface uh, obvious questions. And you can cite Darwin himself. Who would trust the deliverances of a monkey's mind? If, if, the, if, everything, if, if everything is matter in motion, then your brain is just matter in motion. So is mine. Okay? And your brain is a chemical accident, and so is mine. Now, what do the evolutionists say about thought, about mind? This is the issue that uh, Thomas Nagel, I've said, has been wrestling with is they say that mind is epiphenomena, which means in English it is a byproduct of uh, material motions. It's a highly complex sort of uh, subset of a material event. So there's nothing more than the material physicality of the world, and your mind is just the product of that. So there's no such thing as what we might call um, uh, truth or reality that transcends the brain. You don't really have a brain. You don't have freedom. You, have a, you, ha- you don't have a mind and freedom. You have a brain. Now, what is the obvious and immediate problem with that? And I've done this in debates, and I haven't had an answer. Okay, it's a very simple thing to ask. Let's say Ted and I disagree about a question. So I'm disagreeing with an atheist about the world about evolution, okay? Well, on his worldview, his chemical accident in his brain is leading him to one conclusion, and the chemical event in my brain is leading to me to another. But a chemical event is neither true nor false. It's just a chemical event. None of my ideas, my reasoning, has anything to do with logic or truth or anything that transcends my mind or Ted's mind. I reach the conclusions I reach because the weed growing in my brain leads me to one conclusion and the weed growing in his leads him to another. So you destroy the possibility of rational discourse. That's why I say to philosophers who do on the existence of God when we do these debates, I'll say by turning up they lost. Because by turning up for debate, you're saying that truth is accessible to all minds that transcends our brains. Now, the evolutionary story can't account for that. It can't account for consciousness. So he'd ask the question, how is it possible? What is consciousness? In fact, if you want to bamboozle any physicist, ask them, what is energy? They talk about energy all the time. Nobody knows what it is. 
So uh, we can talk about uh, the, I talked about how, how can we justify, how can we appeal to what is non-rational, what came before us, to justify our rationality? Who would trust the deliverances of a monkey's brain? Or my mind? So I, there are a few simple questions like that, that really, uh, I mean, students can ask them. They're not going to get a rational answer. They're going to get some gobbledygook that tries to paper over the, the problem. So there are all kinds of things that can be done like that. A very simple illustration would be to say, um, and this is not original to me, but uh, a debate is like getting two cans of pop and just shaking them up, and whichever one fizzes most wins the debate because your mind is just a chemical accident and so is mine, uh, and so is theirs. There is no basis for um, a, a, a criterion that transcends the physical phenomena of the brain. And this is why Thomas Nagel, as I say, is now saying, well, perhaps the universe itself is mind as well as physicality. So that somehow it was kind of pre-programmed to, uh, t- toward consciousness and thought and rationality, and the universe is realizing itself through us. You know, this is the idea. So there are, there, are, there are lots of thim- simple questions that we can ask. I mean, we can ask in material terms. You know, I, I've asked um, scientists, can you just show me one, just one series of transitional fossils in the fossil record which documents the transition of one basic type into another. I don't want a series of examples. I just want one example. It cannot be produced. So there, we, we need to be bold enough to uh, challenge these you know, obvious absurdities, the irrationality of the evolutionary worldview. And uh, I think your strategy is absolutely right. The way I go about it is asking questions. I don't, you don't need to attack people. Just pose questions that put them into trouble. And then they start, then they're forced to think about it. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.